0: I was on Wall Street for 14 years. I had a third of a life, midlife crisis. I said, what the heck am I doing? I looked around to people who are 15 years older than me. and said, I don't want the life that they have. It's a comfortable life. It's a wealthy life. I don't want it. It's not for me. And so I quit and I had, my plan was to just figure out what to do next.
1: Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Lewis and I are college students learning about entrepreneurship, writing, investing, the world, and ourselves through interviewing super interesting people. Today, we have Kay He on the show.
2: Kay is a super interesting creator on the internet. He has a fascinating backstory. He graduated from Yale with a degree in computer science, spent 15 years in New York City on Wall Street, climbing the different corporate ranks of the world of finance and that whole industry. He encountered along that route some of turmoil on the inside he wasn't happy and he tried all sorts of different extremes trying to fix it and ultimately decided that the only way to fix it was to take some time off he gave himself a two-year stint where he saved up enough money to just explore creative projects and take creative risks that ultimately developed into what is now radreads.co his blog and newsletter community with a weekly readership of around 20,000 people as well as community of hundreds of happy people who have taken his courses and engaged with him on YouTube and all the other places. He shares great ideas. This conversation was spirited, spiritual, and tactical. We dive into a whole lot of topics. We talk about the importance of coaching. Kay is a coach himself. We talk about how he not only is a coach, but gets coaching and the advantages and changes that has made within him and why he recommends it. We talked about different strategies for accumulating personal leverage, which we'll explain in the conversation if you're not totally sure what that means. We get into getting, improving productivity at the deepest of levels, not figuring out just all the tools and tricks to make your computer not need to use a mouse, but maybe at a spiritual level, why you're not being productive and what to do about that. We talk about uninstalling the scarcity mindset and other potentially unproductive beliefs. And I just know you're going to love this conversation with Kay. So I'm going to switch over to it now. Kay, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. We're excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. Thanks so much. Well, I was watching your YouTube channel in preparation for this and stumbled on a video about stamps. And I felt like there is an interesting asymmetry you presented between the the amount of effort and the cost of sending written letters to the potential rewards. So I was curious, one, practically, as the creator of that video, how often you send handwritten notes. And second, if there's a particularly beneficial example of serendipity that's come from that activity recently or however far back you can think.
0: Oh, man. So I have... Sending a handwritten letter is, or note is perfectly encapsulates habit formation because it's like cue action reward. I forget like the last step, but I have on my desk notes, note cards, stamps and envelopes, and so every time I sit at my desk, I'm like, oh, who can I write a letter to who can write a note to? and i that a i just think that it's quite i love writing b when you when was the last time someone sent you a letter like my birthday yeah how'd it feel
1: it always feels I, i keep every single one no matter what
0: totally man we get employees you get like 150 emails 200 text messages and zero letters a day so there's a truly like a very pragmatic side of it that's like, if you want someone's attention, send them a letter because it will cut through the noise like that. Mm-hmm. But there's just something more powerful. It's like, it's a genuine act of love and care. It's like, holy shit, this person went through the e- effort of like getting my address, getting a stamp, writing a letter, dropping it off at the post office. How thoughtful. Right. And, and if you care about people, it's, it's like, it's, it's amazing. And so, so I try to do, I probably do like one a week, kind of go through different moods of it. Like sometimes I'll do like five in one day and sometimes I'll do none in a week. But yeah, but it averages about one a week in terms of the, like, has anything good happened out of it? Like specifically I'm not sure, but I believe. You would be better guests, the arbiters of this than me, but I believe that I have a reputation of being genuinely genuine and thoughtful. And so that reputation has been built off of the back of practices like that. Right. And so I can't say, Hey, you might disagree or people listening might disagree that, that I'm actually genuine and thoughtful, but, and I can't point to a moment where that was confirmed to me. But I, I suspect that that reputation has served me in ways that I can't even begin to imagine Mm -hmm. getting invited to conferences, consulting gigs, referrals, people passing my blog around, people saying nice things about me on Twitter. I got to believe that they're loosely related.
1: Yeah. And to me, when, when you talk about letters I think about the historical uh, perspective of it and just how many letters used to be sent around and like how our brains are designed to now, like when we get a letter, there's something innate in us that I think gets excited. And I think about like the biggest companies that were that existed 400 years ago and how they were run by letters like it wasn't emails that we were getting in text messages. It was letters. And and to think about that is just really mind blowing. Um, I mean, wars were
0: started over a letter, <laughs> right? Teddy Roosevelt would sit at his desk, you know, until like the wee hours of the morning, writing letters to his friends and, and fellow politicians. Like it's incredible.
1: Absolutely. So uh, this last episode that Lewis and I produced, it was a, our year anniversary. And I asked Lewis, I said, you know, what have you learned about me throughout our, our time podcasting together? And he said, you know, I think that you, you play and sometimes you work and I work and sometimes I play. And I know that you have written a lot about creating work that feels like play. And so I'm wondering, like, as a online creator specifically, how did you develop into a, a role or a, a person that worked and played at the same time? Ooh, that's good.
0: That's a good question. I think it it helps to start that I didn't set out to be a creator. You know, I was on Wall Street for 14 years. I had a third of a life, midlife crisis. I said, what the heck am I doing? I looked around to people who are 15 years older than me. and said, I don't want the life that they have. It's a comfortable life. It's a wealthy life. I don't want it. It's not for me. And so I quit. And I had, my plan was to just figure out what to do next. It could mean starting something. It could mean joining something early stage. It could mean changing industries, like just a a pivot. Like I was very open to like going to work at Stripe or Facebook or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I had gave myself two years. I had two years of basically cash savings that I was willing to run to zero to figure out what I was going to do next. And it wasn't necessarily like by design, but what I basic, what became a guiding mantra was follow the fun, right? Cause if the thinking was you got two years, why would you do things that aren't fun, mm-hmm. right? It was a period of exploration of experimenting of chilling. And so it kind of became follow the fun and that's really how the newsletter Radreads emerged from that mindset because I found it fun to read articles and then curate them and then send them to my friends. That's, that's the origin story of Radreads. (laughs) That's that simple. And the 36 people on a BCC Gmail. And so I found that fun. So, okay. I didn't think it was going to be a business. So I was just, I'll keep writing this newsletter newsletter Grew, people liked it. I said, I right, it needs a name, it needs a logo." Ninety-nine designs, get a logo. Like, oh, it needs a landing page. I, I guess I gotta get a real email provider, create a landing page. Oh, you create a landing page, you need to learn how to write copy. What does the button say? Submit, join. Thousand people subscribe to this every day. Gotta learn some copywriting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. and. Every time I find found something fun, I would lean heavily into it. And every time something was like, "Uh, I don't know, I'm not that into this. I stop. That's why I have, I have no presence on Instagram. I don't find Instagram fun. I hate Instagram. So I have like 4,000 followers just because people find me. I don't even check my DMS there. Like some people, I get like business offers through Instagram. I don't even see them because it's not on my phone and you can't like access Instagram on the web. So it's just been a guiding principle and I could, and it's taken me down like crazy rabbit holes, right? Online teaching, right? That was fun. And that is how this mantra now, six years into doing that, I've realized, wait, fun can be profitable. Holy moly. Now that's an insight. And so I, it really has become a mantra that like things can be easy and things can be enjoyable. You can smile doing them.
1: Follow the fun. I think that that that's really powerful. It's so, it's such a, a quick little heuristic, but it's powerful. And I think that like for you specifically, it was a journey for you to find, find that heuristic because you were sitting there on Sundays like spent the last two days being drunk, and then you've got like this this just huge pain in your stomach because you have to go back to the job that you that you don't find fun tomorrow and it's right. like during that two year period you were able to like let that you, you didn't have that, and that's so amazing that that that's where you ended up and I think that I think that's amazing. I'll let Lewis ask the next question though
2: so a question I have kind of on the same line of thinking you talked about how you realized that, you know, it can be easy and fun and profitable. And like, that was a belief that when you came to the other side of it, I mean, you're better off for doing so, right? Like who doesn't want to have found something that they consider easy and is profitable. Another belief that is harmful that you talk about and kind of in the realm of accumulating leverage is a scarcity mindset. Could you describe why that mindset is harmful for accumulating leverage or being the type of person that accumulates leverage and how someone can like start to overcome the scarcity mindset?
0: Yeah, so I'll start. It's a great question, Lewis. The scarcity mindset is this pervasive belief that there's never enough. There's not enough. There's not. And think about it. We wake up. Oh, I didn't sleep enough. We go through, you know, we, we go through the day like, oh, I don't have enough resources. I don't, I need more manpower, more direct reports. There wasn't enough. At the end of the day, there's never enough time to go through your entire to-do list. You are get home and you guys are half my age, but you get home and your kids, there's not enough, you don't spend enough time with your kids. And then you're like struggling to read a book before bed, but you know, you got to get up early the next day to work out. Cause there's never enough time to work out. Right. So the scarcity mindset is built on this concept of there's not enough. And when you believe that there's not enough, you live in a constant place of dissatisfaction disease not disease disease and the scarcity mindset is it's quite natural right you can find its traces everywhere one one very obvious place is just by looking at you know prehistoric man, cavemen, cave people right if you didn't have enough berries you would die right if you didn't have enough heat you would get freeze to death if you didn't uh, have enough defense, uh, saber-toothed tiger would eat you, right? So th- there is a natural wiring that, like, you want to hoard resources. Other places that the scarcity mindset can come f- come from: immigrants, children of immigrants. I'm a f- uh, child of first-generation Cambodian immigrants. They literally came to the U.S. with no money, so they did it. They truly didn't have enough. Now, because of their good decisions, like. paid for my college i went to Yale, like all that stuff like but they still to this day i give my mom a nice lotion for her birthday or mother's day and she goes how much did it cost why does it matter mom i got you it's my money she's did you get a coupon was it on sale so you can cover it there you can come in through the protestant work ethic right that Salvation comes through self-realization, right? So, like if you're if you can better yourself through work, there's you always can be achieving more, doing more. And so those are the, those are the ways, and 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 culturally, right? Look at any billboard, right? Do more in half the time, execute more, just do it. Like the message is more, more, more bigger houses, bigger cars, more apps on your phone, more music, more YouTube, you name it. We live in this culture where we're conditioned to believe that we never have enough. It actually fuels the capitalist engine quite well. What if you turn it around? What is enough? What is enough? What if you start from the premise I always have enough? The earth, the earth, and the universe, however you want to frame it, will give me everything that I need, right? COVID taught us that we have enough, right? Especially people like us who are able to do podcasts and all that, like, you know, not in the front lines, essential workers, things like that. We, what, what did we realize? We realized that if we had shelter, food and our healths, we had enough. We had our families, we had each other. And so defeating the scarcity mindset means a understanding where it shows up, right? understanding where it shows up in your life and then really distilling down the essence of what you need, right? What do you need? You need love. You need shelter. You need food. You need friendships. But beyond that, you get into the land of the ego. You need followers. You need bigger houses. You need that fancy car, et cetera, et cetera. You start to tip into this point of the ego, the hungry ghost, as the Buddhists would call it. And that fuels, then it latches onto the narrative like buy this Porsche in your midlife crisis, right? I had a midlife crisis. The, the easier answer would have been the, the marketing answer would be to buy a Porsche.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I was like, F that. A, I don't like cars. But B, I knew that buying a Porsche was not going to solve the existential angst that I was feeling. Finding a way to connect with my work, connect with interesting people,
2: that might give me a shot.
1: So extremely does, interesting well you go ahead Luke.
2: Dude, i was just gonna ask so how does overcoming that mindset open you up to kind of create a more like effective life besides just satisfying internal happiness and like healing your soul which is important for sure mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah just the, like tactically so what, what what why should someone be convinced like this will open their life to go in a different better direction oh
0: Easy, easy, easiest answer. Scarcity mindset is a belief that the world is, is a um, fixed pie, right? The profits of the world, the opportunity is fixed, right? So let's say podcasting is a fixed opportunity. That means if, if I start a podcast then I have to take from your audience, right? Or we have to compete against each other if we're in the same topic right? Wall Street is the classic scarcity mindset. The bonus pool at the end of the year brings out the worst instincts. People backstab each other all the time. They don't, they actually don't try. Think about this. You work in the same company and people are constantly self-sabotaging one another so that their bonus is higher. Now look at the opposite. Grow the pie create behaviors, right? You want to learn anything about content creation. I'll tell you everything I know. Mm-hmm. Cause you're not going to take from me. You're going to expand the pie for all of us. Right. And so if you can change and you can look around and be like, how can I expand the pie, right? And it could be through like social justice issues. It could be through hardcore capitalist finance. It can be through how you build a team. You expand the pie. A, hey, the fun follows you. The opportunity finds you. The profit finds you. The joy finds you. Plus, that's the world you want to live in. You want to live in a world where, where your colleagues backstab you to take like a little bit of your piece of the bonus pie? Fuck that. You want to live in a world where we all elevate each other because it's not a fixed pie. And if you win, I win.
1: Yeah. I'm curious, like, you know, th- this argument is not, it's not really an argument. You know, it's convinced, like, I believe everything you're saying. What were you like 12 years ago? Like, what was, you know, you're passionate, you're, you're engaged, like you're, you're you're transferring like this positive energy into me. And like, it seems like you had some sort of transformation. But were you like this before, or just trapped in a box mm. that couldn't contain you?
0: That's a good question. So twelve? Do you mean twenty-one or twelve?
1: Sorry, or just... I mean I didn't mean twelve years ago. I just <laughs> mean like before before you leaving, know, right?
0: Yeah. So hardcore scarcity mindset. Super anxious, always worried, always like agitated binge, a, a binger, like binge drinking to binge, working out to binge eating out to binge, working to binge, not sleeping, just mm-hmm. like a pendulum, like one extreme to the other, very insecure, always trying to overcompensate with like CrossFit or lifting or buying, you know, nice shoes or whatever always trying to overcompensate, always trying to prove to others, but really like I lacked courage. Like I lacked so, the courage,
1: yeah. I mean, the obvious question yeah. here is like, you know, what changed or like what realization was it? You know, was it this distinction between scarcity and growth mindset that changed your life or what, what happened?
0: I, yeah, I think, I mean, one is maturity right? Like you just live, <laughs> you see more. I think that a few things change. One, one, there's this quote is there are no external solutions to internal problems. And so I think in my twenties, I'm like, I have a lot of internal problems, which is a lot of the angst and insecurities and just the angst of like being a young adult and be, you know, figuring out like, will I get married? Like, do I have the right job? Am I on the right track? can I pay my taxes all that shit like that normal (laughs) angst right and and so I overcompensated with that angst by like binging like I said binging on work binging on fitness binging on alcohol binging on whatever you name it so I wasn't like if you open my brain in those periods it was like a windy, I use a lot of surf now, it's like a windy choppy day where the waves are just like all over the place and thrashing. There's a lot of thrashing. The thing that changed was that I realized that none of that agitation would go away. None of that dis ease would go away by getting something more. Like I couldn't buy something to make that go away. I couldn't get a job, a certain type of job to make that go away. It had to come from within. And so then I had to look within, and I did this mostly through like a lot of getting coached. I had to look within and be like, you know what, why am I so driven to the point of like binging on these things? Well, in high school, I was a skinny nerd that like never dated and, you know, was not cool. Like. And this is before nerds were cool, right? Nerds became cool, probably like 2007. So I was an outsider, right? I was an outsider. I was, I had this deep fear of being unloved, right? Cause like, I was like, who will ever date me? There was another thing. Like I grew up in New York city. We were like started lower middle-class left graduated high school, middle class, but I got jumped a bunch of times. And so look in the grand scheme of things, my life is quite charmed. Like my parents, like I graduated Yale with zero debt. Like that's fucking awesome. But when you get mugged as a 13 year old by like five dudes, I still think about that shit. And so what I didn't realize is in those years of binging in my twenties and thirties, I was trying to make those feelings from my teenage years go away.
1: Hmm. And when I was
0: a teenager, I said to myself every day, like when I got jumped or when I couldn't get a date, I'm like, I will make sure that as a grown man, I will never be in that fucking position again. And how was I going to do that? Through hard work, working my ass off, making money, achieving status and power. But then you realize as you get older that those things, getting a big bonus doesn't don't make those feelings go away. Getting married doesn't make that fear of being unloved go away. They're very visceral human feelings. And so I went and I'm still on this journey where I get coached. You could call it therapy. It's not therapy because they're not psychiatrists, but they're like psychiatrists. Therapists. I get coached three to four hours uh, a month for six years. And I'm not stopping. I get coached on my marriage. I get coached on my own insecurities. I get, you name it. And I could finally start healing those parts. And then the scarcity could fall off. Then the fun could come, the ease, the pie expanding. And I think it was always in me, but it was so covered by this like fearful kid that was overcompensating. And so once I could, once I could start to to touch the fear, the overcompensation could kind of like melted away a bit and the lightness wanna,
2: came. Yeah. I want to ask you like some kind of more specific questions yeah. about this whole coaching process. And that's something I did intend to, to dive into one question. I think that Kyle asked me on our previous episode was what is one major piece of advice that we've not yet implemented from, you know having done 60 interviews and coaching is something that comes up pretty with like a pretty passionate advocate maybe one out of every six guests is mm-hmm. just like never says their things about their things then sons just like stops and stares right at us, like you need a coach they'll change your life uh, and this is something i've heard you mention before the first time i listened to which was like a office hour session for ship 30 but how did you decide to get a coach what was that decision like do you think this is something everyone should start doing as soon as they can afford it before they can even afford it. Mm-hmm. Like, cause it clearly has served a transformational role in your life.
0: Yeah. Coaching is transformative. but, but let's, let's, let's distill that down a bit. Coaching is, there's a quote that says by Carl Jung, which says until you make the subconscious conscious, it will dictate your life and you'll call it fate. So let's say that someone listening has a fear, so fear I had, that like, you'll never feel loved. You'll never be loved. You're scared of being single your whole life or you're shy, you don't get girls, etc. If you don't admit that you have that fear to yourself, you're going to start doing some wacky shit. I'm sure you see it with your peers. And so that is the subconscious, right? The fear of being like... I don't know a lot of people, when I was your age, I didn't be like, I couldn't say like, I have a fear of not being loved. I acted in ways that manifested that fear, but I couldn't actually state it. So, so much of coaching is surfacing that up, right? Through just talking, right? Through talking, through therapy, through journaling, through support groups, through religion, through community, through account. I mean, there's a lot, that so I think like coaching is one vehicle for connecting with your deeper, deepest needs, desires, and insecurities and talking to them and communicating with them. Coaching is an easy way. I mean, the, the best way would be therapy and, and most health insurances will cover therapy, a good part of it. So there's therapy. You can go the more spiritual route with like journaling, meditation, reflecting, reflection questions. You can do it in a group of people, right? Like you and Kyle, you and Kyle could get together and be like, Hey man, what's your biggest insecurity? Like what, like, what's the thing that you're really, really, really afraid of in your bones? How does that show up? You notice how might you be overcompensating for it? What does it feel like when you drink? If you drink. And so coaching is one vessel, but it's really that process of figuring out. We all have some things that are blockers, that are pains, that are fears, that are insecurities. We all have them. Every so Jeff fucking Bezos, all the way down to, you know, the, the person who works at your local hardware store. We all got them. How can you surface them up in a way that's kind and caring, not like what's wrong with you? And then how can you start to communicate with them to unpack them and then set yourself free?
2: So I, I love all that. and think that's super important. I can imagine myself listening to this pausing and like actually taking the time, not on air, not having to <laughs> queue up the next question, thinking through my own personal answers to that and letting myself run with the exercises later. But one disconnect in my brain that I want your help resolving is... The main, I'd say, if I like had to introduce you to someone else, I'd be like, Tay is a productivity blogger. And like, (laughs) and we've not really touched on most of that. So how do you, like, how and why are you a productivity blogger? And how does that kind of like intersect with this much deeper Mm. kind of like, you know, cause your YouTube is like tutorials for using awesome database, note-taking software in a, in a more effective way. Like, why does that connect to being such a introspective, deep, person. Mm-hmm. Well, the, of, yeah, the the reputation for a product is just being like a hacky life hack. Yeah. Yeah. So well, that's exactly. the thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. W productivity that, in four minutes.
0: Yeah. Well, so I was, I mean, I guess I am that I am the guy like I could, I can, I've got every single like hack, you know, Alfred and keyboard, text expanders and superhuman. And I can go days without using my mouse on my computer (laughs) and like all that stupid shit. So I think it goes back to that, that evolution process, which is you think that some, you know, there are no external solutions to internal problems. So, so much of my fascination with productivity was the search for an external solution. I want more time. How do I get it? I want more money. going to be more efficient to want to communicate more broadly. What systems can I create? And that stuff's great. Like it makes you a great worker. Like I rather have someone on my team who knows about productivity than someone who doesn't, but it's not the end all be all. And so I've been writing about productivity for a long time and what I realized was that as I was going through this journey myself, I could see someone else going through the exact, not the exact same, but some version of that journey. And I could be like, yo, you want, you're obsessed with keyboard text expanders, you want more time, right? Why do you, why do you want more time? And they'd be like, well, cause I never get to see my kids. I'm like, well, why don't you get to see your kids? So my boss is an asshole and he's always emailing me like nonstop. And so I'd say, okay, let's, let's just go through this. Right. You want a text expander because your boss is an asshole. And as a result, you can't spend quality time with your kids. Something's not adding up here. And I kept having that conversation over and over. And over again, where I was like, holy shit, people want productivity to solve their, these core issues. It's their gateway drug. And so sure, I'll give them the gateway drug. Cause I can bang with all the productivity bloggers out there, but that's not what they want. That's what they don't even, they didn't even know what they want. It's a cry for help searching for yeah. productivity advice. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so... Why don't I de- deliver and lean into that, right? It's not as sexy, right? Like four shortcuts to not, you know, to, to not, to, to be a good dad, right? Like this, this doesn't exist, right? But I could lure them, you know, the, the, the informal tagline for Rad Reads is come for the productivity, stay for the existential.
1: Mm. And
0: it's funny to hear, cause some people will be like, you are the furthest thing from a productivity blogger. <laughs> cause you write about death and and acceptance and belonging and love and, and vulnerability. And then others are like, you, you crank out so much productivity materials that like, I, it like blows my mind. And so I, I kind of love, I mean, I, I love not being able to be defined by it. And in fact, my course is actually like people cry in my course, but it's called supercharger productivity. They cry because I, I put them on the spot on those questions. Like you don't need fucking notion. You need to like heal a relationship that you have with your wife. People will cry when you tell them that, especially when they think they bought a productivity
1: course. I mean, I think think that's (laughs) good. It's like the right kind of people, right? That you want, the people that you want to preach to existentially are people that are searching out ways to To quickly close the contracts they have with themselves to be unhappy until they get the thing that they they want that's in their head. You know, it, one thing that stands out to me in relation to what you're saying is the the blog that you had about the guy who wanted to make a hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. and he's like, I think, you know, distilled. You basically said to him, "You're making a contract with yourself to be unhappy until you reach a hundred million dollars," and the the End goal the hundred million. What can you do with that? What does that do for you? And it's like, you know, well, I have more time, or I I can impact the world. It's like, well, couldn't you do all that without being unhappy until you reach a hundred million dollars? And I think it's an important an important point, and that you are reaching a crowd of people, you know, that are specifically prone to making these contracts themselves to be unhappy. So. And what I would
0: just add, Kyle, is that the the core of my audience and like my customers, like they've already tasted it. Mm -hmm. Like they got the big promotion, right? There's a joke with like, what's what's it like to be a law to get promoted to being a partner at a law firm? Like lots of people want to be a partner of a law firm partner at Goldman. It's like and here's the here's the here's what it's like. It's like winning a pie-eating contest, and the prize is more pie. Lots of people. My 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 audience is older. My Twitter audience is more expansive, but like the people who buy like my courses and sign up for my coaching, are in their early 30s to like mid 50s, and they're like, okay, I thought I wanted the pie, I got the pie, and they gave me more pie and my belly is fucking full of pie
1: it's like they completed the contract already it's like yep. they they already found it's like well i already signed and their my stomach name stomach hurts and finished it right okay
0: and they're like grueling in pain because they got more pie and their fucking stomach hurts
1: we've
2: done a lot of podcasts about my experiments with purposely overeating so <laughs> i can say it sucks <laughs> in a literal sense it's a great great analogy
1: well, I, I know that I have a question that I want to ask you about parenting. So obviously we're half your age. It's, it's going to be a minute until I have kids. But you, I really respect the way you think. So I want to ask this while I have you. It's like, what high leverage decisions have you made with your kids that have resulted in you know really positive things? One thing that I am reminding reminded of is when you were talking to Danny Miranda, uh, our friend, and you were saying you know, when you're pushing them on the swing, you push them with two hands. You're not a one-handed parent. And that heuristic stands out to me and I'll probably remember that for a long time when yeah. I'm with my kids in the future. So do you have anything else like that that you have have stood on that has served you well with your children?
0: I do. And it's actually, and it's not even just my children. It's It's with everyone. And it's this beautiful definition of love. I might've said it on Danny's podcast from a a meditation teacher by the name of Tara Brock. And she says, love is the fullness of presence. And so I am with you, you have 110% of my presence. There's not a single window open. I'm not thinking about anything else. I am with the two of you right now. I am giving you love. That is, that is a definition. That is my definition of love. And so when I'm with my kids, the always the ultimate test, and it's it's similar to the one and two-handed parenting. Am I giving you the gift of my fullness and presence? That doesn't mean standing there. That doesn't even mean not being, not having your phone on you that means that all of my thoughts and energy are directed towards you with love i don't adhere to that standard because it's damn hard right when your mind's racing a mile a minute you got tweets to set to queue up <laughs> when you get home and you have ideas for youtube videos and blah 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 but it's aspirational like when i'm with you is is my full presence with you because think about it in this distracted age, right? Whether it's, and this is where, again, a lot of the things we were talking about coaching, like you could be really nervous. I don't know. Let's say no, no disrespect to your podcast. Let's say you were James clear interviewing me and I was at the swings with my daughters right before. Be like, oh man, this is my chance to be on James podcast. Like I could get all these new followers. And if I got all these new followers of this and this and this and this and this, and this, I could have no phone in my hand. I did not give my kids my love, the fullness of my presence, because something about the James clear interview was making me so nervous, which gets back to the coasting question. Well, what is it? Is it validation? Is it scarcity? Like. This is the only time you'll ever get to talk to James Clear. Don't fuck it up. Right? See? See how scarcity can really screw with you? Whereas it's just like, yo, if I just show up to James and be myself, things will work out.
1: But my argument there, or not argument, I, I use that word too much, would be like, what about isn't a growth mindset though? Like you're you're nervous because there's so much opportunity to be had there. So is there another side to the coin?
0: Absolutely, but if you if if you're, is it a growth from a place of fear? Right, like I will I will not have this opportunity again, or I can't fuck this up, or is it growth from? right. Follow the fun. Could this be easy where it's just like, I just stand in my truth. Right. And it doesn't mean be lazy. Like I could sit down and spend an hour. If I were the a case, really hashing out my talking points, going through anticipating. That's totally cool. I'm just saying, if I'm on the swing with my kid, be on the swing with your kid. Mm-hmm. If you're preparing for James, prepare for James. But don't merge them because this goes back to your original question of parenting is like james is an extreme example but you have that version of james 10 times a day in your life and so if you have that 10 times a day of your life in different degrees then you have 10 opportunities each day to not show up for your kids with full presence and you compound that over 10 years who knows what happens to your relationship with your kids.
1: I
2: think that's a great way of thinking about it and your full attention. And I think it's, again, it comes back to the same asymmetry of writing letters, right? Based on the trends in society, you can almost see, not judge people, but you can learn a lot from them based on the level of attention they give you. Because everyone is just readily ready to have a distraction. Like if they don't mm. want to pay attention to you, it's not like they're going to have to think real hard to come up with what they yeah, do to it's do a bear. Mm. So So is very obviously a choice when someone does choose to give you that attention that they've like pre-calculated that you are, or are not worth their undivided attention in that. And,
0: and I would add, you know, we talked about follow the fun, the fullness of presence. I love to, I love to combine that into a a little bit of a mantra that I use where, where I say you never want to compete with someone who's having fun and who genuinely cares. Think about that, right? That's two super, you can move mountains with those two. So I don't know, superpowers or virtues, whatever you want to call them. You never want to compete with someone who's having fun and who genuinely cares.
1: You want to be the person who's having fun and genuinely cares. Exactly,
0: words to live by. And I mean, you guys are lucky that you're hearing that at 21, man. I, I didn't discover that until like three years ago, 38.
1: And that brings some people me to never these...
0: discover that. Think about the tragedy of that.
1: Yeah, it brings me to a question that we we ask a lot of people, and that is, you know, obviously we're young. we're twenty one. We got a lot of life ahead of us, and I don't really like to ask this question because it's like seems cliche, but like, what things could we be missing that we mm. shouldn't be missing? Mm. That you know, it's like. If you could start what do you wish different? you had done differently yeah. you know that's mm-hmm. a that's a, a a cliche question but i think it's yeah. important to ask it's
0: it's a great question so i i always answer that question by saying that i am the byproduct of all of my past experiences both good and bad so i would never actually change any of them mm-hmm. right i couldn't write about the stuff that i write about if i didn't have the struggles on wall street Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so I needed that to get to where I am today. Now there are certain things that I wonder, I'm like, Oh, could I do this differently? So there are a few, the first is actually the scarcity mindset. Like I wish, I didn't even know that that was a concept until five years ago, but I wish that I had seen earlier that there is enough, right? You don't have to fight for this like precious resource of enough. Cause it brings out these like, and, anim- you know, very primitive instincts. That's one related to the scarcity mindset. And I think you guys will push back on this is that I had a core worldview that for something to be worthwhile, you had to struggle to get it or to create it. Like you needed struggle. And I fundamentally, it's tied to the scarcity mindset. I fundamentally disagree with that view, but it's really hard. Cause you could look at me and you're like, well, okay, you worked on wall street, you, ha- you have savings. You have this, you like, you can say now, sure, but I didn't even know it was possible. Right. So you may disagree with me, but I, what I, what I invite you to do is just be open to the possibility. I was debating this with Financial Samurai yesterday on Twitter. He's like, be open to the possibility that great things in your life can happen and be worthwhile without attached struggle and suffering. The third one, and then I could see Kyle's get, like teeing up to, to ask some questions.
1: Well, you, I mean, you want to say something. I got something to say about it, but keep going, keep going. And let me say this to the third one.
0: We'll come back. The, the, the third one is think about how you, they're, they're all related. Actually think about how you talk to yourself in your own head, the inner critic and a good ratio. Think about like, if you look at all the thoughts directed to yourself, like do more of this, or you should have done this is the voice mean or kind. So my mean to kind ratio in like my twenties and mid thirties was like 90% mean 10% kind try harder. That wasn't good enough. You suck. Like, I mean, literally you suck. Past five years, 10%, 5% mean 95% nice. Great effort. I'm proud of you. Didn't work out the way you wanted. You tried your best. Right. And, you know, you can get into some like participation trophy type stuff with that, but it took a physical toll on me being so hard on myself. Like, I'll tell you this story. Once I went to a wedding and like, have you heard of alopecia? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Like a fucking chunk of my hair, like, like the weekend before one of my fraternity brother's weddings, like a fucking chunk, like the size of a half dollar, silver dollar came out of my head. I like literally spray painted that shit with like some fake hair that you find <laughs> on YouTube through like a YouTube ad. Like that's not normal. That means something is physically happening inside of you for that to happen. I mean, it could be random, but like, if you look at my pattern of binging from like work to drinking to fitness, like I would work out on like four hours of sleep and do like, you know, 500 burpees, like just like, like not fucking normal. So there's a cost to that pressure. There's a cost to that belief that you need to struggle. And then the last one is related is just, I wish I had taken, I wish I had slept more. Like I slept six hours a night for most of my adult life. And I'd be like one of those douchebags. that's like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Like, you sleep two hours. I got two hours up on you every day. Compound that over blah, blah, blah. Like I was one of those a-holes. I'll take the red eye all that stupid shit. I'm paying a health price for that right now for not sleeping and having slept enough in my twenties and thirties, you guys are lucky. Cause like when we were 20, not sleeping was a badge of honor. Mm. And I think culturally that's changed where that's just like you're it's like smoking like why would you do that it's stupid so you guys are lucky that you have that tailwind at your side but kyle please push back on the struggle part well, of the inner critic. i mean
1: it's not even i'm not even pushing back really it's just it, it is about what perspective you have and what perspective you take and i think it comes back to something that you wrote about which stuck with me was you know process over something i can't remember outcomes. what process over outcomes if that is greater than one then, you know, you are happy. And like, I think that even when things are hard, even when you're, when you're going through something that you know is hard, if you frame it in that way where you, you prioritize the process, like it, it isn't hard mm-hmm. or it's not hard in the same way, it's not a struggle. You're getting the benefits of a struggle, but you're not like, you know, wishing that it was over. Because yeah. you have that mindset that it's process over outcomes is greater than one, and you know it's harder said than done, obviously. And I, you know I'm not like a poster boy for it or anything like that, but I think it really is about perspectives and your ability to <clears throat> to transverse that distance between it being greater than one and less than one, and knowing where you're at.
0: Totally. And process is something you can control, right? I can control. How how many days a week I exercise? I can't necessarily control my weight, right? It, it helps; they're correlated. But like, actually, for me, like my mom weighs ninety two pounds, my dad's like one twenty five, I'm one forty five. Like, I actually can't gain weight. <laughs> so, but like, I actually wish I weighed more, right? And like, so even if I eat like. 5,000 calories. If I lift every day, like I will never crack one fifty-five. Like my body is just, it's like physically not possible.
2: You haven't tried go mad. Have you? No,
0: no. I I like stopped with the, the, the weight. Like <laughs> I used to care. I used to like eat like 14 egg whites yeah. a day, like uh, do all that stuff, but not, not a, you, you also hit a point in your life where you just stop caring about that stuff. But, uh, but I, but I, I say that more to illustrate that, like I can control how much I eat. I can control how much I lift, but like what my ultimate body weight is, is out of my control. Sure. And if I'm going to be attached, like if I, like there was a point in my life where I wanted to be 185. It just It's it not, it's not in the cards for me. Just like I'll never be blonde haired and blue eyed Like it's just
2: not in the cards for me. So I know we're running up on time. I have one question, which is not like a usual kind of like Grand big picture question. Just one I'm curious to ask uh, about shiny object syndrome. Mm -hmm. So what would it take for you in a new, exciting productivity tool or system to abandon notion or even entertain the thought of abandoning notion for something new or different?
0: Oh, I mean, I play with every, like, like I said, I could bang with any of these productivity bloggers because I've used every single tool. I download them, I'll buy them, I'll subscribe. I... I think there's, there's like, there's the existential component and then there's the fun component. So the existential component is an acceptance that if I'm, if I got creative block or if my business isn't humming, there's no app in the world that will fix that. And I know that sounds so obvious, but if you just look on the internet <laughs> the internet is rich of examples that actually do believe that like some Airtable integration, like notions API is going to solve like so many problems that people have. No, dude, the thing that's going to solve your problem is like good prioritization. <laughs> like you don't need an app for that. That being said, the things that, that I always look for in an app are, um, tons and tons of keyboard versatility. Like I don't want to use the mouse. I love beautiful design and speed. And actually that's where notion is really struggling is in the speed category. And to me, speed kind of goes hand in hand with how my, my mind, my mind like is constantly racing. And so like, I almost need my tools to keep up with how fast like things are going there. It's not cause I'm smarter, just cause I'm like so distracted a lot. But so, so yeah, speed keyboard shortcuts, they're related good design. And again, joy. I mean, I think the thing that the notion really nailed is like, it's just fun to be in that ecosystem, right? It's just a good, it's like an Apple product, like Apple and, you know, and a Dell, you know, MP3 player, they do the same thing. No one feels good about like using a Dell MP3 player, right. Or whatever the current day example price. I'm like, you know, crappy Android phone or something, right? But so, so those are the things, right? It's very much aligned with like my life philosophy. Like, does it spark joy? Does it come naturally? Recognize that there are no external solutions to internal, internal problems.
1: Yeah, I really, really like that answer. And recently I found joy in Obsidian and I really, really have been enjoying that app. And that's been like sort of my driving factor is like whether or not, I just vibe with it. And like Rome, don't get me wrong. I like it. No one come for me, but like, I don't know. I just, I really enjoy obsidian, but I have the last question for you. Yeah. And this is very off topic with the rest of our conversation, but as a finance major, and you know, I'm constantly consuming information about it. I've got this like fundamental misunderstanding about the entire field. And that is why does anyone try to measure risk when the only risk that matters is risk that no one can see? Mm. Oof.
0: Well, I think that people will, I think that you can approximate risk, right? Like, You can approximate risk because you because of the intrinsic composition of an asset right so take uh crypto Mm -hmm. and take the most you know the helmsley hotel on fifth avenue in central park in new york city right that is a physical piece of land with hundreds of years centuries of foot traffic and brand recognition and cash. Like cash goes out of the hotel, like through room, room rental, room room rentals. So, so you can approximate, you can make an approximation that investing in the real estate of the Helmsley hotel is less risky than crypto. Mm -hmm. But the place where people get stuck up is you can't do it with precision. Right. Because, you know, crazy arsonist could come and burn down the hotel or.
1: Right. COVID exactly. could happen. That's exactly what I'm saying. Right.
0: COVID could happen. Right. What did COVID do to New York City hotels? It decimated them. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't there's a baby with a bathwater. Right. Just because you can't precisely measure it, you can approximate it. And the approximation is one of the tools, not the only tool combined with fundamental, you know, uh, fundamental research portfolio, construction, diversification, et cetera, et cetera. It's many different tools and it's one tool. I think the problem, and I think that this, this may be where your question is being directed is that there is people believe that risk is a measurable end all answer. So they'd be like, okay, put 7% in this and no. It's bullshit, right? It's bullshit. It's a tool like anything else that can help you make better decisions, but should not underpin the decision itself. And you should approach it with humility with like, this thing could be totally wrong.
1: Right. And it, it, the reason that I asked with such vigor is it's just so deeply built into our, you know, our textbooks and our, our practice questions. It's like, okay, well, here's, you know, your risk is your market risk. So this is what you write here. Mm -hmm. And and that's that. And it's just like, you know, it's like, to me, COVID happened. And it's like, okay, well, that just changes every number Mm -hmm. that you, that you put here. But anyways, thanks for for answering that. And thank you very much for coming on. You know, I've got a new appreciation for the way that you think. And I think it's, it's really cool. Just the existential side of, of your brand that, you know, I, I sort of saw, but I didn't fully understand until I, we, we had this conversation. You're, you're speaking with us. So thanks so much for, for coming on the Lewis and Kyle show.
0: Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Lewis. That was a, it was a great honor and it was just a fun conversation. And I, I look, I'm really, I love talking to people half my age because I don't have the answers. I, I don't have the answers. I have the questions, right? Lewis said, he's like I'm going to go back and I'm going to pause this and listen to those questions. Like I got the questions. I think the most powerful thing that we all could be doing, whether we're 42 years old or 21 years old, is asking ourselves good questions and being truthful, as truthful as we can with the answers.
1: I think it's a beautiful place to end. Questions are the key to the universe. The quality of your life is
2: measured by the quality of your questions. 100% agree. If people want you putting thought-provoking insights into their brain more regularly or more so than they can get just from this hour, where do you want us to direct their attention?
0: I would thank you for offering and just send them over to radreads.co not uh, com where kind of everything kind of feeds off of that. Sign up for the newsletter because like I write a lot and I'm always kind of shepherding people around based on that. And social media I'm most active on is is Twitter, which is my f- first name, which I'm sure you'll put in the show notes, but it starts with K-H-E. If you just do K K H E he Twitter, it'll it'll pull up.
2: Oh, great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank
0: you both. Have a great day.
1: And that wraps up our conversation with Kay He. It was a really cool conversation. It was a cool opportunity to be able to talk to somebody who's writing online so prolifically and and helping so many people. My three takeaways, I'm going to get right into them. The first is like getting to your why's before you get to your what's. You know, there's so many different apps. There's so many different solutions out there. If you just Google really any problem that you're having, you're going to find something that, you know, claims that it can solve your problems. And one thing that he said that stuck with me was that, Internal problems cannot be solved externally, and the external solving functions would be things like these apps and, and these different solutions to your problems. When really you need to get to your deepest whys of, of who you are and, and what's happening before before you should even approach what's causing the problem. Right. The second, and this is a different way of saying it, but we talked a lot about it. Is like this ladder and carrot idea. It's like. You've got all these different ladders and on top of the ladder is the carrot. And like the carrot is that day that you're waiting for, that promotion, that, you know, that accomplishment that you think you might be able to get to if you work super hard. And just the realization that once you get there, it's like there's another ladder and there's more ladders all around you all the time. And you have to be able to enjoy climbing the ladder and not focus too much on the carrot that's in front of you. And I thought it was cool how, you know, the people that are in the space of looking for a productivity course to take are sort of the people that are looking for carrots as much as possible. So it's really cool that he's able to, you know, spread this message of like internal health, I guess, through his courses. And then the final one for me is the last question that I asked him, which is about financial risk. And it's just something that I think about a lot. So it was really interesting to, to hear him answer it the way he did and that it's an approximation and that, you know, it really is just a guess and he's overly qualified to answer that question. So that'll stick with me as an answer to a question that I think about often.
2: Yeah. I love those takeaways. I think the ladder and the carrot analogy, I've heard about a lot of the idea where, you know, if you work eight hours super hard for 10 years, your reward is getting to work for 10 hours if you get that promotion <laughs> and I think the visceral analogy of your reward for eating more pie is having to eat more pie when you're already full is a lot more of a powerful way to explain that phenomenon which is something I very much want to avoid in my career I have three takeaways different from yours in a good way Is in we're not just going to repeat each other which we sometimes do which is also okay first one is that struggle is not necessary to whatever it is you want to do it's the classic Tim Ferriss question. I thought we were this close to making it through a podcast without saying Tim Ferriss, but I guess not. <laughs> uh, the question is, what if this was easy? What would this look like if this was easy? We have this assumption that things need to be difficult because for whatever reason, like a lot of joy comes from suffering. And We've had other guests to say that, you know, your happiness is on the other side of something difficult, but that there's a limitation to that as well. Like, There's also plenty of good to be found in things that don't require struggling. I didn't want to interrupt Kay uh, when he was talking, but one example I thought of is there's a book I've read about calisthenics called Convict Conditioning. And that book's training philosophy is you don't go to the point where the reps hurt. You don't go to the point, like you always leave some in the tank. So in that respect, like the workout feels easy, And that's what actually allows you to be strong the next day in the gym. Like you should feel stronger at the end of a workout than the beginning. That's kind of like a weird extrapolation of that, but it doesn't always have to be miserable. And certainly as Kay talked about right at the end, his sleep troubles he has now because he slept not enough, there's long-term implications of pushing too hard. The second one is exactly what you said. I I lied about not being redundant. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You cannot solve, or the best way to solve your external problems, your internal problems is not with external tools. So yeah, you could re- you could switch your second brain from Notion to Rome to Evernote back to one, back to the other. But if the problem is in your first brain, that's where we are going to have to solve it. So I think that's Ooh. super valuable insight for people and maybe even a tweet. Who knows? Uh, third <laughs> one is, yeah, this is podcast maybe number 15 or whatever it is where some really successful awesome person is really espousing the benefits of coaching. So if that's something you haven't explored yet, which I haven't because I've kind of I don't know why Kyle and I might take his therapy question after and go for that and maybe try to self coaching, but clearly there's some more work to be done. And that's something you should consider, not just for internal problems, but for anything that you want to progress in a belief is subconscious until it's conscious. And the, one of the best ways and most reliable ways to surface them is to have another person help you. I think that is super valuable insight and advice. So. That's all I have for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. We make a lot of awesome episodes. And if you haven't listened to the recent ones, I would highly encourage you to do so. Last week, Kyle and myself published a conversation, just the two of us, talking about what we learned from doing this podcast for one whole year. Pretty crazy stuff. Uh, Week before that, we published one with this guy named Jake. Just Jake. He's anonymous, but he's blown up in the crypto and futurism world for his writing and podcast on those topics. We talk about the future of cities, future of cryptocurrency, future of human health, Pretty awesome conversation. And then before that, we talked to Dr. John Jake Wish, who is not Jake, different guy, but similar sounding name. He's humongous. He's totally ripped (laughs) and he doesn't lift weights. I'm going to leave you to listen to that podcast to figure out how that's even possible. Uh, If you enjoyed this conversation, you should subscribe so you're notified when a new one comes out. That usually is on Tuesdays. If you want to show your support, say hey to us on Twitter, jump into a conversation. We'd love to keep the conversation rolling and leave a rating or a view to tell us to keep doing what we're doing. That's all for this week. See you in a week with the next one.